Welcome back to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. It's been a while since our last episode, but I've been productive. We have a website now. You can head over to peedsoup.com, P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, and find streaming links and notes on all our episodes, links to the articles and guidelines I use to prep them, and teaching scripts to help you pass along the things you learn in the podcast. There are also links to a couple of surveys, which you can fill out if you want to help me make the case that podcasts are a solid educational tool. The site just launched, and there are bound to be some things we can make better, so don't hesitate to get in touch to let us know how to make it work for you. Getting back to why you're really here, in this episode we're going to talk ingestions and poisonings. Prescription, over-the-counter, illicit, accidental, and intentional substance overdoses cover a lot more ground than I can fit into one episode, so we'll be a little bit more focused here and try to hit some of the more common and interesting substances instead of the ones that exams just treat like flashcard facts. In the interest of not repeating the same things too many times, let's start with what you should do for every patient that makes you worried about an ingestion. In younger kids, lethargy and loss of balance are usually suspicious signs, but any patient with a sudden, unexplained change in behavior should make you wonder if there's something in their system. Do your best to narrow down the time of ingestion as much as possible. Even if the best you can do is figure out the last time the patient was at baseline, it will help you figure out what to do and how long the patient might be at risk. If you can get a history of what the patient took, you're off to an even better start, but you should always check the blood, urine, or both for co-ingestions. Testing is where some familiarity with your lab will help you out, because knowing what drugs are included in a test and how quickly the results come back will keep you from basing your treatment plan on a lab that won't result for a week. Physical exam findings can point you towards certain substances, which we'll cover as we go through the episode, and every patient's management starts with ABCs, making sure they're stabilized before getting into more specific treatments. We'll get things started with Tylenol, also known as acetaminophen, and, because we have some international downloads, paracetamol. Tylenol poisonings are super common clinically because it's available over-the-counter and as an additive in lots of combination medications that can lead to accidental overdoses. It's also really common on exams because we know a lot about what happens in the body and how to treat it. At therapeutic doses, the liver metabolizes Tylenol before anything bad happens, and the small amounts of N-acetyl-P-benzoquinone-amine, which I'm going to call NAPQI from now on since I proved to you that I can say it, are handled by glutathione. An overdose, more than 150 mg per kilogram in a single dose, or more than 200 mg per kilogram in a day, overwhelms the usual pathways and causes a buildup of NAPQI that does oxidative damage to the liver. Tylenol toxicity is described in four stages, creatively named stage 1 through 4. Stage 1 covers the first 24 hours after the ingestion. Patients are usually asymptomatic but might have some nonspecific symptoms like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and sweating. Labs are usually normal except for the acetaminophen level but AST and ALT can start to rise as soon as 12 hours after a large ingestion. Stage 2 occurs 24 to 72 hours after the ingestion, when the initial symptoms resolve and liver enzymes start to elevate. Depending on the level of damage, you might also see signs of trouble with synthetic function, like changes in bilirubin and PT or INR. Next comes stage 3, 72 to 96 hours after the ingestion, where patients start to show signs of hepatotoxicity and even liver failure. ALT, AST, bilirubin, and INR keep rising, while patients become jaundiced and encephalopathic with the potential for developing multi-organ failure. 
If the patient makes it through stage 3, stage 4 is the recovery phase where symptoms and lab abnormalities resolve for up to 2 weeks after the ingestion, provided there's enough undamaged liver to make a recovery. Now that you're all scared of Tylenol overdoses, I should mention that those four stages mainly describe untreated toxicity. With treatment, most patients skip stage 3 altogether, and plenty move from stage 1 right into recovery. The key to good outcomes is early intervention. For a single overdose, most of the guidelines are based on measuring an acetaminophen level 4 hours after the ingestion, although there's a nomogram to help determine treatment thresholds at different time intervals. If you're within 2 hours of the ingestion, activated charcoal might help reduce the toxicity, but any patient with a high enough serum level earns treatment with N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC. NAC helps replenish the liver's supply of glutathione and shunts drug metabolism to less harmful pathways, basically helping the liver catch up with the NAPQI that's accumulated. Ideally, treatment should start within 8 hours after the ingestion. And since the risks of giving NAC to someone who doesn't need it are a lot lower than the risks of liver failure in an untreated overdose, you can start treatment while you're waiting for lab results if you're up against the clock. In most cases, NAC is given as an IV infusion. Oral dosing is just as effective, but it's a lot of scheduled doses over a 3-day period. And treatment continues until the patient's ALT and AST are improving, INR is normal, and the acetaminophen level is undetectable. From a major over-the-counter substance, we'll move on to one of the major prescription medication classes, opioids. Opioids are constantly in the news, and with good reason, but the problems aren't limited to adults. Two recent studies, one by Julie Gaither, Veronica Shabanova, and John Leventhal in JAMA Network Open, and another by Manrup Kaur and Justin Lee in Pediatrics, looked at trends in pediatric opioid overdoses and deaths. From 1999 to 2016, the annual opioid-related death rate in patients under 20 rose from 0.22 to 0.81 per 100,000, which isn't much in terms of absolute numbers, but is almost a 300% increase. Opioid overdoses peak at 2 to 3 years old, when kids are maximally mobile but still not smart about the difference between medicine and candy, and again at 17 to 18 years old. Both studies found that less than 25% of overdoses were intentional acts of self-harm, which is somehow encouraging and depressing all at the same time. The classic opioids like oxycodone, hydrocodone, Dilaudid, and all the rest are responsible for a huge portion of cases, but it's important to remember that dextromethorphan and Lamotil, both of which are available over-the-counter, can cause opioid toxicity in young children. Patients with opioid toxicity will be lethargic with constricted pupils, hyporeflexia, hypothermia, and, most significantly, respiratory depression. As always with a lethargic patient, it's a good idea to check a blood glucose and look for co-ingestions, especially since so many opioid formulations are combined with Tylenol. It's also worth saying that some synthetic opioids like methadone and oxycodone are metabolized differently and might not show up on a standard urine drug screen. Respiratory support, anywhere from positioning the patient safely all the way up to intubation, is the most important part of treatment for opioid intoxication. The two pillars of opioid overdose management are time and naloxone, which most people know better as Narcan, and which of those two you use more of depends on the case. Naloxone is an opioid reversal agent that usually acts within a minute of dosing to make patients more awake and alert. There aren't many adverse effects mainly vomiting in a lot of patients, and the possibility of triggering opioid withdrawal symptoms in chronic users. So the general recommendation is to at least try a dose if you're concerned about opioids. 
The downside is that naloxone's effects only last around an hour, which is quite a bit shorter than most opioids stay in the body. That means it can get tricky deciding whether to give more naloxone, either as intermittent doses or an infusion, or to just wait until the patient metabolizes the problem away. I couldn't find any hard evidence to support any one protocol, but in practice, a lot depends on how much support the patient needs. A Narcan drip is definitely less invasive than intubation, but if all the patient needs is a little supplemental oxygen, it might be reasonable to just let them sleep it off. Before we get out of prescription meds, I want to touch on benzodiazepines. As a hospitalist, I see a lot of kids with benzo prescriptions, mainly for seizure disorders, so it's not an unusual thing to have come up. Benzodiazepine toxicity can cause labile moods, CNS depression, ataxia, and respiratory depression, so again, the most important treatment is respiratory support. Flumazenil is out there as a reversal agent, but unlike naloxone, the risks often outweigh the benefits. In long-term benzodiazepine users, which describes a lot of patients with seizure disorders, flumazenil can trigger withdrawal symptoms, and flumazenil can cause seizures and arrhythmias in any patient. One-time ingestions in patients who aren't on chronic doses are generally safer to reverse, but in a lot of cases, the safest course of action is usually to just give supportive care until the medication wears off. Benzodiazepines are a nice segue into our next substance, alcohol. Alcohol affects the same parts of the brain as benzos, so the effects are also pretty much the same. Mood lability, ataxia, CNS depression, and respiratory depression. That's about all the time I'll spend on alcohol intoxication symptoms, because I'm pretty confident almost everybody listening has had at least one opportunity to witness those symptoms out in the real world. Most resources I found said that neurologic symptoms develop at concentrations of 80 to 150 mg per deciliter, which corresponds to a blood alcohol content of 0.08 to 0.15, and that 500 mg per deciliter is generally considered a lethal concentration in adolescence. That being said, it's important to note that the exact thresholds and symptoms vary from patient to patient. We do know that infants and toddlers are at higher risk for coma, hypothermia, and hypoglycemia at lower alcohol concentrations, so checking a blood glucose and providing other supportive care is always important. You should also get as much detail as possible on the history, because if there's any chance the patient ingested methanol or ethylene glycol, you're going down a completely different track than you would for ethanol. When you are confident that it's only an ethanol ingestion, it's all supportive care until the symptoms clear. The last substance I want to cover in this episode is cannabinoids. With legalization and decriminalization movements spreading in the U.S., it's more and more likely you'll come across cannabinoid intoxication. The downside of an emerging issue is a lack of consensus. There are a good number of case reports and some review articles, but none of the big, broad information we usually like to base our decisions on as providers, so we'll do the best we can. I'm also not even going to attempt to say anything evidence-based about synthetic cannabinoids, the things you hear referred to as spice, fake weed, K2, and other names that are going to make me sound really weird and out of my depth. There are tons of different formulations with different effects, and weirdly enough, they don't go through the usual FDA testing protocol before people start using them. Standard, old-fashioned cannabinoids have gotten a little bit more complicated with the development of high-concentration products like resins and vaping fluids, but at least the pharmacology is consistent. Cannabinoids lead to decreased systemic vascular resistance, nystagmus, conjunctival injection, 
decreased concentration, motor impairments, and lethargy, sometimes to the point of being comatose depending on the dosage. Regardless of the degree of symptoms, everything I found in the literature while I was researching this showed patients returning to normal within 24 hours. Even the patient who was described as being in a coma turned around in 12 hours without any kind of intervention other than supportive care. And that wraps up our episode on ingestions and toxicity. Remember to start treating every potential overdose by making sure the patient is stable, then get as thorough a history as possible to narrow down the type and timing of the ingestion. You're never wrong to check a blood glucose and screen the urine, blood, or both for drugs to verify your history and rule out any additional substances that might be in the picture. From there, supportive care is the first, second, and third thing you should do for everybody and bring in the N-acetylcysteine for Tylenol overdoses and a little Narcan for opioids. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, remember to check out pedsoup.com, and if you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can reach us on Twitter at pedsoup or email pedsoup at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pedsoup.